Let's join together in prayer. What a privilege to be able to address you, Almighty God. Thank you so very, very much for gracing us with your very presence here now. And we ask now that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you will take your word as we look at it right now, make application in our lives to hearts that are responsive. And may none of us ever think that the message is intended for someone else. May this be very personal. May this be something that each one of us is able to reconcile our lives with. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Titus 2, 6 through 8. We're going to be looking at the power of example. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I don't want anybody to get paranoia over what I'm about to say, but you are being watched. Do you understand that? You are being watched. All of us are being watched, and we're being watched all of the time, and we don't even know it most of that time. We don't think about it. We're not conscious of it, but we are being watched. Some of that watching may be done by little eyes, and they're watching a mom, a dad, an aunt, an uncle, a grandpa, a grandma. And they're seeing and they're hearing how it is that we live our lives. The power of example, especially from those younger eyes, but we have to broaden that. It's not just the younger eyes, but it's people that we go to school with. It's people that we work with. It's people that live on either side or behind us. It is those that understand that we go to church. They understand that we claim to be Christians. They understand that we're supposed to be examples and they watch. And they watch sometimes hoping that we'll fall, hoping that we'll falter. And sometimes they watch because they want to learn. Sometimes they watch and they decide, I want what that individual has. The power of example. 1967. A missionary by the name of Doug Nichols was doing some missionary work in India when he contracted tuberculosis and he was committed to a sanitarium for several months. I know this isn't a real clear picture of the sanitarium, but it is a real picture of that sanitarium and it gives us an idea of what it might have been like for him to be living there. He found himself in a lonely, confusing, and troubled place. He didn't know the language of the other patients, but he did want to share the good news of Jesus with others. Now imagine that. Here he is. He's given his life for the Lord. He's given his life to the people of India. And now here he is in a situation like this with tuberculosis. A lot of people would say, why, Lord? A lot of people would say, I don't understand. A lot of people might even become bitter or doubting. 
But all he wanted to do was to share the good news of the Lord Jesus with others. But he didn't have a whole lot of wherewithal to be able to do that, not being able to speak the language. In fact, all he had in that sanitarium were a few gospel tracts in the language of the people. So he tried to pass them out, but nobody wanted them. Then one night, Doug awakened at 2 a.m., coughing so violently that he couldn't even catch his breath. During this coughing fit, he noticed a little old emaciated man across the aisle trying to get out of bed. He was so weak he could not stand up. He began to whimper. He tried again, but to no avail. In the morning, Doug realized that the man had been trying to get up to use the bathroom. The stench in the ward was terrible. The other patients were angry at the old man for not being able to contain himself. The nurse cleaned up the mess and then slapped the man. The next night, again, Doug saw the old man trying to get out of bed. But this time, Doug got out of bed, picked up the old man, carried him to the toilet, even though it was just a hole in the floor, and then brought him back to his bed. The old man kissed Doug on the cheek and promptly went to sleep. Early the next morning, Doug awakened to a steaming cup of tea beside his bed. Another patient had kindly made it for him. The patient motioned that he wanted one of those gospel tracts. The next two days, one after another patient asked in his own way for the tracts as well. You never know when somebody is watching, and it could be 2 o'clock in the morning and you don't even know what's going on, but somebody's always watching. This morning we will see something of the power of being an example, of being a role model for others. The Indians did not understand Doug Nichols' speech But his loving example was very, very eloquent. It's a life that we can live that God has entrusted with us. He's given to us the privilege of being his ambassadors. He's called us to be role models. You notice in the scripture that we have this morning, Titus was told in verse 7, show yourself to be a model. That word is also translated example. Show yourself to be a model, and then a little bit later in your teaching, show, display, demonstrate these things. The power of a life that is lived as a positive example for the Lord Jesus is certainly in view to each one of us here this morning. You'll notice that verse 6 begins with the word likewise. It takes us back to verse 3. The third word in verse 3 is also the word likewise. The older men were supposed to be taught, according to verse 2, then likewise the older women were to be taught to learn things so that they could pass them on to the younger women. We said at the time, what's good for the gander is good for the goose. But now in verse 6, The word likewise, again, what's good for the goose and gander is going to be good for the goslings as well. Now the young men are in view. But please understand, everyone of all ages needs this sound, healthy doctrine. The words sound doctrine continue to reverberate in the book of Titus. We need something that is healthy, and we need it for all ages. And we need all ages to be working together, the older teaching and helping and providing examples for the younger. But the younger aren't left behind. Even Timothy was told that he should be an example, even as a young man. Don't let anybody make fun of you because you're young, but be an example of the believers. And we'll see that in just a moment as well. So we're seeing a couple of things here. We're seeing what is to be taught And later on, we will see what is to be 
caught. So there is teaching that goes on, and Titus is a part of that, and so is everyone who is here. We're going to be teaching, but we're also going to be catching things. We're going to be catching things by the life that someone else is living. So what is it to be taught? The young men are addressed. How young are they? I don't know for sure. Again, John MacArthur claims the general age group for young men would be from marriageable age to 60 years or so. How many of you are glad to hear that? You can be a young man up to 60. I have my own theory. I think that you can be a young man up until the age of 110, and the ladies can be young ladies up until the age of 120. That's just my theory. I can't prove that, but that's that's my theory. Notice what's to occur with the young men. They are to be urged or encouraged. A word that we're familiar with. We've heard the Greek word parakaleo before. It's a broad word. It has a whole lot of nuances of meaning, as do some of these Greek words, many of them, in fact. It means to call near or to call to one side. In other words, it is a strong invitation. It can even mean to beg or to entreat or to beseech. It is a word that, as Titus is told here by the Apostle Paul, urge these younger men. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is something for you to beg them to do. And so for all of you who would consider yourself younger men, but for all of us as well, because all of these things can apply to each one of us, but in this context, there is a specific message to the younger men, and they are begged to to receive this message, or at least Titus is begged to give that message to them. So what are the young men to be taught specifically here? To what end are they to be urged? It's really only one thing before us here. They are to be self-controlled. That's the only thing really that they're singled out here. They're to be self-controlled. This is the fourth time this word is used within the four specific groups of people that we've seen. Everyone needs to be self-controlled. But particularly the younger men are to be urged to be self-controlled. Self-control is that translation of a Greek word, that means safe or sound in mind. It actually means to be sane, to be in control of your mind, to be in control of your thinking. It's to be curbing our desires, to be curbing our impulses, to be able to have some self-mastery in thought and judgment. Already we've seen that if you, if you glance back at chapter 1, verse 8, we've seen that to be an elder... He has to demonstrate self-control. We don't want to be voting for elders if they don't have control of their lives, if they don't have that self-control. The older men are to be taught self-control according to chapter 2, verse 2. The older women are to teach the younger women self-control, presumably having learned it themselves. That's chapter 2, verse 5. And then if you look with me at verse 12, all of us are reminded of the need for self-control. If you look down at verse 12, training us, it says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So once again, it's for all of us to have this self-control. We're all reminded of that. And several times I've given a word picture of what it is to be self-controlled. I'll repeat it at least this one more time. I like to look at it as being able to put on the brakes 
or shift to a lower gear when our selfish desires or appetites are stepping on the gas pedal. That bad part of us is saying, go for it, do it. And the good part is saying, no, you don't need to do that. You don't need to be involved in that. You've got to stop. There are limits. Walk away from that. Don't do that at all. Why are we reminded so often of this need for self-control? I believe that God recognizes that we're often very low on that brake fluid. We've got to check the levels. We've got to make sure that when we need the brakes, that they're there and they're working. And that's what self-control is all about. We've got to put on the brakes sometimes. We've got to say enough is enough. Interesting that self-control is the last of the graces of the fruit of the Spirit. It's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, is, um, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control brings out the end of the list. Something the Holy Spirit produces in us, and yet at the same time, it's something that can be taught. It's something that can be encouraged. It's something that can be worked on. Do you know that in the area of self-control, younger men don't have a very good track record? Sometimes the younger men are picked on in this area. Maybe that's why this is the only thing that is mentioned with regard to them. One commentator puts it this way. Young men who frequently are impulsive, passionate, ambitious, volatile, and sometimes arrogant. Another commentator says, since young men are inclined to be somewhat impetuous and unrestrained in conduct, their basic need is to be self-controlled, cultivating balance and self-restraint in daily practice. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And so we do that again this morning. We urge you who are younger men, be self-controlled. Understand what this means. Understand that you can't do it by yourself. You need the Lord's help. But not, again, just those who are the younger men. All of us need to be begged to use self-control in so many areas. What is to be caught? That's what is to be taught to these who are younger men. But what is to be caught? And it appears there may be more instruction to the young men in verse 7. In the NIV and the NLT, that's the New Living Translation, it reads something like this, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. So it would read something like this, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching teach them these various things after that. But there is a little bit of a problem in that. And that is that the word them, that some of you will see highlighted on the screen, doesn't appear in the original language. That's why you don't see it in the ESV. Those of you that are looking at an ESV Bible, you won't see it there. If you're carrying a King James Bible or a New American Standard Bible, you won't see the word them. It's more of an interpretation than a translation in the NIV and the NLT. So the the, the fact is that Titus is called to be an example And it's quite possible not just to the younger men, as some of those translations would indicate. Take them out of there, and then it applies to all of us, once again, all of these age groups that are there. And I believe that's the rendering that is is intended. So the word them, verse 7, not in the original language. Titus called to be an example, not only to the young men, but to all the age groups. 
The immediate context may point to the younger men, but it's not limited to them. In everything, not just self-control, but in all that has been said so far to all the age groupings, Titus is supposed to set an example by doing what is good. And again, if you look at verse 7 with me, you will see Titus as the example that he's called to do. Twice the word show, once the word model or example appears. That's what Titus is to be all about. He's got to show some things. He's got to model some things to everyone. Titus, a young pastor, those of you that are on search committees, and the whole congregation is going to be on the search committee before too long, look for that. Look for somebody who can speak, who can say the right things, who can teach, but also look for somebody who's in the example, somebody who lives what it is that he says. And that should be a very important question of every reference that is ever checked for any of the candidates. Does the teaching get backed up by a life that is in obedience to the Scriptures? The word model, as we see it used here, translates the word example in a number of the translations as well. It's a rich word. It's got a lot of challenging implications for each one of us. It is the Greek word tupas, from which we get the word type. Now, some of you will remember this. There used to be an instrument of communication called a typewriter. Do any of you remember that? The typewriter? Um, Think about that. You would push a key and then something else would happen on the top of the typewriter. That's the imprint, the tupas that is used here in the Greek language. You can see it in John chapter 20, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, and this is Thomas that is referred to here, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the tupas or the mark of the nails and place my finger into the tupas or the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So what we're talking about here is a word that is translated as an imprint or a mark or an indentation, something that you can tell somebody has been there or something has been there before. I'm thinking about the mark on the pulpit here. There's a cross down here. How many of you can see that? Can you see that? Uh, Many of you can, some of you cannot. Um, My son Dan actually made this pulpit and he put that in there. And I I think of that when I I think about that tupas, the imprint of that cross that he put on there. You can think about the mark or the impression left by an instrument such as a pen or a sword or a hammer. What is left behind when they do their job? um, I'm not the best handyman in the world. In fact, I may be very, very close to the bottom when I use a hammer and uh, maybe I'm trying to set a nail or something, you're not supposed to be able to see the imprint of the hammer on the wood afterwards, especially if it's fine wood or fine furniture. I have a whole lot of tupasses that I leave behind. Um, I'm not setting the nails very, very well. But the whole idea is that every one of us leaves an imprint. Every one of us leaves a mark, and we do it wherever we go. And that's why I say that, that you're being watched. All of us are being watched, and we're being watched all of the time, and we've got to be very, very careful about how we live our lives. The literal meaning of tupas we've seen, but it also came to be used even more figuratively of a pattern 
or a mold or a model or a copy of the original of something. Titus was being called to be a pattern of Christian living. He was called to be a mold out of which others could be poured. He was called to be a role model. He was to be the original from which great copies could be made. Show yourself in all respects to be this tupas, this model of good works. And in your teaching, show some other things. Show integrity and dignity and sound speech. And all of this cannot be condemned. Think about the importance of example, especially from those who say words to people. Their example. They're the ones who say the words. Think about your teachers. Think about the people that have spoken with you about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes very important that the life backs up the words. Titus was then told, you've got to back up what you're preaching with the way that you are living. You've got to practice what you preach. What is this called? The Heimlich Maneuver. It's not somebody doing violence to someone, but this is the Heimlich Maneuver, saving a choking victim with a bear hug and abdominal thrusts to eject a throat obstruction. Some very important things about this. Since its inception in 1974, it has become a national safety icon taught in the schools, seen in movies, displayed on restaurant posters, endorsed by medical authorities. It's also the stuff we read of breathless, brink-of-death tales told over the years by famous celebrities and politicians who credit the maneuver with saving their lives. Dr. Henry J. Heimlich, the thoracic surgeon and medical maverick who developed and crusaded for the anti-choking technique, that has been credited with saving at least 100,000 lives, died last month at the age of 96. There's something very significant about Dr. Heinlich, and that is this. If you can see the screen, this was the news. Choking victim saved by Dr. Heimlich, inventor of Heimlich maneuver, never used it before. Interesting. More than four decades after inventing his maneuver, Dr. Heimlich used it himself on May 23, 2016, to save the life of an 87-year-old woman choking on a morsel of meat at their senior residence where they were living in Cincinnati. He said it was the first time he had ever used the maneuver in an emergency. I don't know about you, but I find that remarkable. Patty Reese who had by chance sat at Dr. Heimlich's table in the dining room, began eating a hamburger. And the way she puts it, the next thing I knew, I could not breathe. I was choking so hard. Recognizing her distress, Dr. Heimlich did his thing. piece of meat with a little bone attached flew out of her mouth, he recalled. It's never too late to practice what you preach. And I hope we can think about that next time you eat hamburger, (laughs) next time you choke, next time you see somebody choking and you use the Heimlich maneuver. Never too late to practice what you preach, especially when we're dealing in areas that are far more important than the physical. Far more important that somebody be able to understand the life of someone dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ and to see that example. One of the commentators has 
voiced his concern about lives that should be backing up the words that are there. And here's what he says. Consistency of life with teaching is perhaps the most important aspect of effective spiritual leadership. The writer of Hebrews could confidently admonish his readers to imitate those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, because the conduct of those leaders corresponded to their counsel. That's Hebrews 13.7. Paul informed Timothy that the surest way to overcome the perceived disadvantage of his youthfulness was to make sure that in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, he showed himself an example of those who believe. That's 1 Timothy 4.12. Members of the church at Ephesus might resist the bare words that he taught, but they could not deny the power of the truths that were faithfully exemplified in his life. If his speech in daily living, not just from the pulpit, was godly, if the conduct of his personal life was moral and selfless, if his love for the Lord and for fellow believers was genuine, if his faith was manifested in genuine trust in the Lord, and if his life was characterized by moral purity, he could be sure that his ministry would be effective, that it would be blessed and bear fruit. Again, there's a lot to be said to search committees and search congregations as we look for staff members in the future to be looking in this direction, consistency of life and teaching. Again, I ask you to think about the power of example. In a book called World Horizons, a man by the name of Cole Robinson writes of Benjamin Franklin. I put this picture on a $100 bill so you would know that that's Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, uh, well-known in many areas, but he decided at one time to interest the people of Philadelphia in street lighting. So how could he do that? How could he best interest the people? Well, what he did was to hang a beautiful lantern on the end of a long bracket attached to the front of his house. He kept the glass brightly polished and carefully lit the wick each evening at the approach of dusk. Anyone walking on the dark street could see this light from a long way off and come under its warm glow. What was the result, as Robinson tells it? It wasn't long before Franklin's neighbors began placing lamps outside their homes. Soon the entire city realized the value of street lighting and followed his example with enthusiasm. Power of example. For those of you that can see the screen, the picture of Billy Graham holding his Bible up. That's my favorite picture always of Billy Graham when he holds God's word up. That's, that's what he's proclaiming. He told about the conversion of an individual by the name of H.C. Morrison, pictured here, who looks an awful lot like Art Williams to me. If those of you that <laughs> knew Art Williams, that's not Art, but that's, That's H.C. Morrison, who founded Asbury Theological Seminary and was very actively involved in the Lord's work. Very interesting story. Billy Graham said that Morrison, a farm worker at the time, was plowing in a field one day when he saw an old Methodist preacher coming by on his horse. All he did was see him. They didn't engage in any conversation. No words passed between them. He saw him coming by on his horse. Morrison knew the elderly gentleman to be a gracious, godly man. As he watched the old saint go by, a great sense of conviction of sin came over Morrison, and he dropped to his knees. Can you imagine that? He just saw the guy. He saw him. 
and the man's life was shouting at him. He needed to repent of his sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. There between the furrows in his field alone, he gave his life to the Lord. When he concluded the story, Billy Graham earnestly prayed, Oh God, make me a holy man. The power of a godly example. It's what Titus was told. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show these various things that are mentioned as well. Personal example needed to precede Titus's preaching, but the preaching had to be of the highest quality also. He had to show integrity. Oftentimes we think of integrity, and particularly in the Proverbs and uh, in the Old Testament, integrity is living the same kind of a life everywhere. It's not being duplicitous. It's not living a life here with my friends and then here with my church people or my family doesn't know who the real me is. Integrity is being totally one, a person who, again, is not going to be a hypocrite or a double-minded person. In the New Testament, integrity is often defined as uncorrupted, not being able to be capable of corruption or decay, to be pure, So Titus' motives needed to be pure. He couldn't be like those described back in chapter 1 of Titus. And if you remember back in Titus 1, and if we were to look at verse 11, we see a description of those people who need to be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And there's more description that is given there of that. So Titus' motives needed to be pure. He had to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works, show integrity. Did you notice that? He's showing this in his life. And this is something that's going to be caught as he's teaching this in his very life. He also needed to have dignity. Not That doesn't mean humorless, but he needed to bring seriousness, gravity, majesty to his preaching. He needed to preach in such a way that people understood that what he was saying was important to him and important to them because it was coming from God's Word. And he needed to be sound in his teaching. Not enough to just live a life, but he had to show through his life sound teaching and then teach it. This is the fifth time we've seen sound or soundness, meaning healthy. Paul makes reference in Titus to healthy doctrine, healthy in faith, and healthy speech. The speech in view here is both formal and informal. It's in the pulpit, but it's also on the street. It's how he lives his life. All of this was important so that he could not bring justifiable condemnation on himself. Live right, talk right, so that you're not condemned. But even beyond that, very interesting. And Paul says, so that no one would have anything bad to say about us. Not just you, Titus. But us, Paul, the other apostles, Christians, you live and show the right things and teach the right things so that nobody's going to be able to point a bad finger at any of us who are believers in Christ. There's a lot at stake here. The original language suggests the picture of a courtroom where the judge can find no basis for the accusation of the plaintiff. Interesting. Our kids are taught about Hudson Taylor from the time they're in primary and maybe even before. 
But Hudson Taylor, years ago, the communist government in China commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor with the purpose of distorting the facts, presenting him in a bad light, discrediting him so that he wouldn't be a martyr, but everybody would think he was a fraud. They wanted to totally discredit the name of this missionary of the gospel. As the author was doing his research, he was increasingly impressed by Taylor's saintly character and godly life, and he found it extremely difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his life, he laid aside his pen, he renounced his atheism, and received Jesus as his personal Savior. Whether we realize it or not, our example leaves an impression on others. Even when they try to discredit us, they can't. Notice again this morning, then, the interconnectedness of our words and our actions, understanding that we're being watched. And we're being watched even though we don't realize it, and we may not realize the impact that we may have on others. Twice recently, I heard of people who observed something about my basketball playing when I was in high school. Not the playing, but something about me, the way I conducted myself. And I'm not going to tell you what it was. But it's amazing. After all these years, I've just heard comments now about something that I was not aware had an impact on somebody's life decades. I'm not going to go too many decades, but a long time ago. There is a world that is apparently doing more watching than listening. But it is important we have the right words. But those words lose all significance if they're not backed up by godly lives. Please think about the power of example. We have a very critical audience that is watching us, waiting for us to have a mishap. That's why healthy doctrine is so important. It's the instruction manual in how to live those lives, how to be salt, light, and fragrance like God intends for us to be, to make a difference. What are you modeling? What are you modeling to those who are watching right now? A couple of action steps. Identify an area of lack of self-control in your life. Identify an area of poor modeling. Ask the Lord for help and replace the bad with good. Don't just say, I want to get rid of this. Replace it with something good. We're told not to be anxious about anything. So anxiety is something that we would like to replace. Let's replace it with something good. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Replace it with something that's better. Don't be anxious but use that anxiety as a signal to pray. So the action steps, we identify in our lives what's wrong. We ask the Lord for help. We replace that which is bad with something that is good. And we can apply that in a lot of ways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of example. And thank you that even as Titus was told to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works, he was also to show in his teaching integrity and dignity and sound speech so that nobody could condemn that. Please help us to live the kind of lives that even though a watching world may hope that we stumble, they find that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns supreme. May they see our good works and glorify you in heaven. We thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.